Do we have any questions or thoughts left over from previous engagements? And I won't be here next week. We're skipping a class. I'm going on a brief holiday with Durga. So you don't have to feel sorry for me. It's a medical trip, but it's a pleasant medical trip. It's not a gruesome one, so it's really going to be a ho- sort of a holiday toot. Okay. Okay, we're at number 152. Um, the Master told us this beautiful story about Durbasha, a saint in ancient India. Durbasha was called the angry one. Well, remarked the Master with a chuckle, his anger may have been a bluff to protect himself from curiosity seekers. You know, the masters have all these techniques. And, and I mean, just, um, it's its own world, you know. Master said Lahiri was lucky. He didn't have to preside over any wars in his incarnation. And Durbasha's just pretending to be angry. It's a, a world we don't know that much about, do we? He was, however, a great yogi and a deep lover of God. One day in ecstasy, Durbasha danced in the spirit with Lord Krishna. In his exaltation, he suddenly beheld his body lying on the ground, lifeless. His body now was that of a young man. From then on, others saw him rejuvenated, and Durbasha cried out with joy, I was dancing in the spirit with Lord Krishna, and I saw my old body lying there in a heap. Krishna has given me a new suit of clothes. What a strange miracle, isn't it? There was that other story. Is it an autobiography of a yogi where the um, where the the old man goes in? in they're on the funeral pyre, and, he, and the young man had died, and he put he he changed bodies, and then took the young man's body, and ran off with it. And then they had to cremate the old man. The family had no choice but to cremate the, the old man's body, even though it wasn't their child anymore. And then in this one where it's just like it falls off and another one comes on. Uh, wow. India's a strange place. <laughs> but once again, I mean, I was talking a lot over the weekend about Babaji materializing a palace in the Himalayas. And we've been talking, we were talking early about Master going into that little tiny... Uh, through that slit down into the three stories down in the cave. And it's just a world where things happen differently. And a society that is able to just take that and not immediately try to figure out why it isn't true. The inclination is to think it is true instead. There's also, there's sort of a lesson here, which is, why do we worry so much about everything? I mean, I was just talking about American politics in September 2016, which is kind of grim. But who knows? Who knows what's trying to happen? Bad things lead to good things because bad and good things forever alternate. (laughs) So bad things naturally lead to good things and then good things lead to bad things. Just depends how long your view is on the whole thing. My, my, my. Okay. Also, the interesting about Durbasha being the angry one and how little personality relates to inner reality and how different it would be for his disciples to be able to see who was really there. Even the conversations about Sri Yukteswar when Swami said, I see so much love in his eyes. And Master said back, oh, there was no love in those eyes. (laughs) But nonetheless, 
there was the, the, that absolute loyalty and love of spirit. It just was his personality. But, but Sananda Ghosh told us about um, Sri Yukteswar, because Sananda Ghosh was 15 in 1935, and Master's um, Sri Yukteswar would come visit Master's father at the house where Sananda Ghosh was living because he was the son of Master's brother. So Master was 15 when Sri Yukteswar died, so he'd been a small child during those years from 1920 to 1935 when Master was in America, but Sri Yukteswar would come to meet his Guru Bhai, which was uh, Master's father. And Sananda Ghosh talks about him as being very lighthearted, very jovial, very humorous, very entertaining to the children, that he would have uh, sweets in his pockets, and he would play with the children. It's just a completely different picture. So uh, Sananda saw him in a very sort of jovial uncle sort of way. Not at all in terms of the austere. Uh, so, what can you say? Even uh, Richard Wright's description of him in Autobiography of a Yogi talks about his laughter and his humorous way of flipping his nose, you know, the end of his nose like this. It's just kind of just a, a humorous habit that he had. So, it also depends on what relationship you're in. You know, if, if you're subject to his discipline, it's one thing, as Master was. If you're a small child looking for chocolates in his pocket, it's another thing altogether. My, my. Even Master, when he talked about Sri Yukteswar, talked about what a sort of unfathomable nature he had, just how unusual he was. It's so... um, Well, it's, it's so sort of awesome to contemplate the unique individuality. That here was Sri Yukteswar, and he was a master. God realized who knew when. But he still had this essential nature which he kept expressing. He still had some way of being, which all of us do. I mean, I'm looking at the group of you, and each one of you looks so distinctly different from the others. (laughs) And all of you have your essential vibration and your way of doing things. Which, what amuses me so much is that I'm sure you all make such good sense to yourselves, just as I do to me. You know, all of my, all of my reactions and decisions, they all follow seamlessly one after the other. And, and from my point of view, I just don't, I don't see how I could be different. It's not that I can't change myself, of course we all can. But you know, just that essential orientation, whatever that might be, and this soul's long journey, think how long this individuality has been evolving itself. It's fascinating to contemplate and very, very expansive. I was um, meditating the other day on some things I was trying to resolve within myself. and <laughs> I realized the essential problem was a fairly self-evident one, that I was always in the equation. I remember once when... Uh, there was a certain amount of interpersonal difficulty that was going on in the community and this one man at, at, at that time, there was a lot of different things that would happen over a period of a year or two and finally Swami sat him down and he said, I have to point out to you that the one consistent feature in all of these difficult situations has been you. <laughs> you know, you always seem to be in the middle of where the trouble is. And in fact, it was true, he had a difficult personality. 
And he said, after a while, Swami said, I have to begin to think it has something to do with you. And I was just thinking about relationships that are difficult or reactions to situations. And the only part that makes it hard for me is that I'm there. In other words, I take it too personally. And I just thought how, how different those relationships would be if I didn't identify with it personally. If my body and personality were still having those interactions, but that I wasn't identified with it, then of course my responses would be completely different also. I've been having an interesting experience because I've been involved in this political uh, movement in our city with the uh, rent stabilization measure. We're not supposed to say rent control, but it's rent control. And uh, I, I'm, I'm in, it's sort of like I just find myself there. It doesn't really matter why, but I don't have any personal relationships in this room. And it's a political situation in which a lot of people have a lot of strong feelings. And they're all acting it out. But I have no personal stake in it. I mean, I have a stake in the success of the project, but I have no personal relationships. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I certainly feel and respond differently when I'm not involved. And that's what made me think that the only, the consistent problem in all the problems I have is that I'm there. <laughs> I, think you're, I think that's making sense to you. And I just thought, if I could just get out of it, then everything would run so harmoniously. And meaning, if I stopped having a personal reaction. Because in this other group that I've been in, there's been a certain amount of disagreement or, or questions about how to resolve things. And I've just very impersonally just watched the energy move around. Watch this person respond this way, this one do that, this one do this. And it's, the energy is all very clear. And occasionally I've even made a very small contribution. But entirely different than when, it, when I have a stake. But why would we ever have a stake in things? Especially when we have a stake that merely uh, confuses it. And of course this is what I've said about Swami in many contexts. He had no stake in things. He had no personal, he was completely impersonal. That's the right word, just impersonal. He was there, he participated, he, he, but he, he, was, he read the energy and then responded impersonally. And then therefore that you don't do anything to create waves. Waves even may be created around you, but they're not your waves and you're not causing them just like the waves were created around when I've been sitting in those meetings. But they're not my waves. They have nothing to do with me. But what is the difference? That's what I had to ask myself. And the difference is just my attitude. So I was suggesting to Swamiji that he should take me out of my relationships and then they would all go better. <laughs> it, it was a, it's a prayer that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> in other words... We all make the mistake, Master said, of thinking that what happens to us personally concerns us personally. And I've heard that for years and I've said it many times and suddenly I was beginning to understand just on the, on the, just the edge of how you can still be completely committed and engaged but not personally concerned. That's what Swami did when he was in the middle of the lawsuits and he was the object of enormous vilification just enormous vilification. What he actually said was, 
he just uh, spent his time in the astral world when he was in the courtroom. That was what he said. He was sitting in the courtroom, but he just looked into the astral world. But that's another way of saying, I'm just going to separate myself from my body and personality and ego. Why would I, why would I identify with this? Nothing is happening here that I particularly want to relate to. I think I'll just go, go to where I really am until this is over. Fascinating, huh? And why, why can't we do that? Because we've got those likes and dislikes are holding us too hard. But there's no other answer. See, that's what I've been figuring out lately. It's not, uh, you, can, you can suppress things for a while and time can pass and so they no longer hold front and center. I, hold a, I, I read a very sweet thing about a woman who's, um, who, the husband to whom she was deeply devoted. Uh, there was a, this, it was a, a book written about 100 years ago. It was a, it was a memoir but there was a yellow fever epidemic and her husband and two of her children just were taken in the epidemic. So, I mean, everything was fine and then it was gone. And, and she had to go on because she had other children and she went on to become a writer, actually. And she wrote beautifully. She said that after a time, it wasn't actually that she forgot about her husband and her children who had died except the immediacy of present-day concerns just uh, begin to preoccupy and, and, and develop a certain sense of urgency. And that just kind of... It, it's not that you ever forget, it's just that it, it's impossible to hold it in front of you because in front of you are the things you have to do. It was a, it was a beautiful way to express it because I've tried to figure out how time changes karma because it's still, I mean, it makes you feel different about the karma because it's still the same experience. But that, and to suppress it, which is what we do, and we suppress it by stiff upper lip, you know. We pull up our socks, we straighten our spine, and we go on because we have to, you know, mm, like that. But that's not the same as transcending because those because there's still a vritti. And, and transcendent is when, because when you still have those vrittis, then in the future, you make decisions and you do things that don't make any sense. They're not, they're not consistent with the energy that's in front of you, but they're perfectly consistent with the energy that's inside of you. And it's very difficult to tell. I knew, I knew there, was a, there was a very un- unfortunate, uh, a brief marriage in Ananda's history between two people, and it just it lasted a very short period of time. And the, the problem was that both of them, the, the phrase that was offered, was had no idea where their pain came from. And so in each other's presence, something would happen that would trigger a painful feeling and they made the mistake of thinking that it was caused by each other because they didn't know where the pain was coming from. And often if you suppress something, even over incarnations, or you're not able to transcend it, you carry it the next time, something triggers it and there just appears to be a cause and effect relationship. 
And it's very difficult to tell that it's not actually a cause and effect relationship. And then you get to start it all over again. I mean, it, but it's not so simple. It's not because it's it just... Um, experiences make very deep impressions on us. And it we're just... And, and sometimes, just like that woman's writing, you have to put something else in front of you. You can't spend your whole time just sitting there, nor can you necessarily overcome it just by sitting there and staring at it. You have to develop... Well, the way Swami put it to me once in a situation that I was caught in, he, he said, uh, maybe the karma is over. And then he let that hang in the air for about four or five seconds while I inwardly did little cartwheels for joy. And then he said, but I don't think so. <laughs> but then he said, but you have taken it as far as you can take it now. He said, you have to put it on a shelf, which is essentially stored in your chakras. And he said, and you have to just go develop yourself in other ways. And then you'll, you'll come around and you'll, it'll meet it again, but you'll be somebody else at that point because of what you've done over here. So when it returns, you're somebody else and you have new um, vibrations with which to meet it. And I, I think that's over many incarnations how these things work themselves out. But it, it's it's very humbling. Oh, so it was a little bit of what I was trying to talk about last night, Swami's anniversary. Just how how completely surrendered we have to be to the the penetrating gaze of the Guru, and and just be willing, and just be willing to just say, well, what are we going to do about this? Because too much willpower doesn't even help you. Because then you discipline it but you don't actually transcend it even though disciplining is as you know you, you just have to do the right thing anyway no matter how you feel so, so it's not like you can as I said just indulge your feelings but to be able to do the right thing no matter how you feel see Swamiji he was and, and I, I've only I've only come to appreciate this as deeply as I have more recently I said to him at a certain point, I said, because you're so impersonal, it's easy to think you're not sensitive. And I said, but in fact, you know, you're, and, and in fact, he said, oh yes, he said, I'm far more sensitive. In fact, I read something he said, he said, when things happen to me, he said, I feel it in every cell of my body. Because he's, he's so sensitive. But because he's impersonal, he could still just carry on his dharma regardless of how he was feeling and if you if you weren't sensitive if I wasn't sensitive which I wasn't sensitive a lot of the time I didn't know I, I took him at his word and I didn't feel his consciousness as clearly as it would have been helpful for me to do as a friend but what that's given me is that oh I, that's, that's how it's handled it's handled by just letting it be and then still doing what you need to do and giving it to God. Well, here, sir, what are we going to do about this? I think about all those years of suffering with SRF and how continually his guru kept astonishing him with their cruelty toward him. You know, just like every time we thought we'd hit a rock bottom, they would find a way to go deeper. And he just had to just do it over and over and over again. Amazing. Well, I don't sure what...
prompted that, but anyway, there it is. Like Durbasha being angry, it had nothing to do with anything. Okay. Any comments or thoughts? Is that the complete, did I, is that the complete question? Oh, I feel that I'm there for a reason. Um, I have actually said an intelligent word or two in a timely manner, and I've been able to speak helpfully in a timely manner more consistently than I sometimes can because I'm able to read the energy and know when it's time to talk. I'm not being compelled by my own restlessness or anxiety to force my will so I can be more useful to the group. I can also just be kind of a cheerful, supportive presence on everybody's side, which I think it's nice to have someone in the room who, who, who at least tries to be everybody's friend instead of being so clearly partisan in a very partisan situation. So I think my purpose is to is quite self-evident to me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be going. So really, your energy is still there. Oh, my energy is quite committed. Okay. See, but that was Swami Kriyananda. His energy was quite committed, but he he didn't he wasn't he didn't have any vrittis in his chakras, so he wasn't taking any energy in the room and spinning them around his personal agendas. When I'm in a room where I have a lot of history with people especially certain rooms with certain people where I have more history. Um, the, I have a vritti that I'm running the whole time. And so even energy that's happening in the room, I need some of it to keep my vritti going. So instead of being able to just be a calm, supportive presence, I can, I, I'm pulling a, a bit of the energy to keep my vritti going. And I, you know, I'm aware that that's happening. And I, I struggle against my vrittis and, and try to stiffen my spine and do the right thing. You know, I mean, this is not like it goes on all the time. It used to go on all the time, like 30 years ago. I just was so impatient. I actually took up needlepoint because I couldn't, I had to sit in these meetings and I just, I had so many vrittis running, I, so I, used to, I just did needlepoint like this. I never, you know, I just made things because I just couldn't, I had to do something with the energy because otherwise, you know, I was eating all the, now I, I don't have to do that because it doesn't come up that often. But when it does, I can feel it. But sitting in that room, I don't have any vrittis I'm keeping going. I mean, I'm, I'm anxious for the issue to pass, but I'm even, you know, I can just sit there and let it happen, whatever's going to happen. I'm working hard. But see, it, I'm not, it's not my life to be that calmly centered in something that is central to my personal dharma, that would be a way step above. I think this experience was given to me just so I can say, oh, this is what it would look like if I were able to do it, and then try to carry that back into places where it's not so natural. Does that make sense? Because it was Kriyananda. I never identify with Swami Kriyananda. I consider him an event for which I am responsible. So he, he just lived in his personality and behaved appropriately and part of it he you know he he had to suffer he had to feel pain and he had to feel disappointment and um, distress and you know many different things being Kriyananda was a fully human experience um, I mean I, I, I gave that image once in here which I love where I finally figured out that being Kriyananda for him was like being one finger of my hand and that was how he you know as if all of his consciousness was this and the part that was of his consciousness that was Kriyananda was just one finger. So that as a person, 
you would never actually think that your finger was you. But if it gets smashed in the door or ceases to work in some way or gets gripped by someone and no one will let it go, there's a lot of things that you have to do in relation to it. But you, you can still see yourself as being all of this, but you, this is still, it holds you. And I, that's sort of what I finally decided. That's how, my, that's how Swami related to being Kriyananda. That it was, it was uh, an event that he had to take care of. And so he was fully there, and it, it held him. And then when he died, he just, it just, the identification with that just slipped off, and he went away again. Does that make sense? But when I'm, in most of my life, I identify with the whole of it. It's very hard for me to just go to the astral world with most of me and just leave the rest of it there. I mean, whether you go to the astral world and actually don't know where you are, or just sit as we're sitting here, but see, I think that's what Swami really meant. I don't think he was walking through fields of flowers, but maybe he was. But I think he just looked at this room and saw that reality. Because it's right here, in front of us. We're just too, too caught here to be living here. It's like living here living at the spiritual life. Fascinating, isn't it? And worth, worth trying to grasp because it's, because there's no other answer. That's, that's, I'm just getting that more and more. There is no solution to any of it except on the plane of consciousness. And just, you know, step by step, we've just got to uh, really on the deepest level accept that. So we stop wasting energy trying to make it right on any level but the plane of consciousness. Again, we still have to participate, but inside ourselves, especially in terms of suffering and bliss. These are two big deals. Does that make sense? Okay. Number 153. Women are more influenced by feeling, the Master used to say, and men more by reason. You can see it in the very shape of their bodies. Women's breasts are in the heart region where the feelings reside. Men's foreheads, on the other hand, the area covering the brain where the intellect is centered, are square and often have a slight projection above the eyebrows. To all look at each other, right. One day I was talking with a successful woman author, Master says. All her life she had been competing in what was primarily a masculine arena, and she prided herself on her intellectual outlook on everything. In everything I do, she told me, I am guided entirely by reason. I said nothing. Gradually, however, I steered the conversation around to another woman author, this woman's competitor. When it came to discussing her trade rival, the woman had nothing good to say. Ah, Master said teasingly, you go only by reason, do you? She saw immediately what I meant, and we had a good laugh over it. You know, this is Master's way. He could have just confronted her. He could have used reason to try to reason her out of his position. But uh, Swamiji often said that, you know, if Master rarely articulated what he wanted us to learn, but he created the situations in which our necessary lessons would come to the surface. And in that case, he just did it himself. He just steered the conversation in a direction. 
But what's very sweet about that story is that as soon as Master actually confronted her on it, she laughed and accepted it completely, that there was nothing in her that began to argue that, in fact, she was really reasonable. Swami uh, tells that story in the path of when they were digging the swimming pool in the desert, and they had built up all these mounds of sand, and Master had him and Norman take two-by-fours and try and level the mounds of sand. Master was saying, these mounds of sand look very untidy. We need to flatten them out. So just before lunch in the hot sun, I love it in the book, Swami says, I don't know if this description conveys to you how difficult this was to do. <laughs> but there they were, you know, pushing on all this sand. And Master kept having him do one more and one more and one more. And until they broke. And then, it, Swami, it's a phrase Swami would use, break in the right direction. And it's something that, 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 as a devotee, it's a nice phrase to have in your mind. You know, which way are you going to break when the pressure really gets on you and you just can't stand it anymore? Are you just going to throw up your hands and laugh? And that's, of course, what Swami did. He suddenly saw what Master was doing to them, and then he laughed. This woman saw what Master was doing to her, and then she laughed. And it was, it was just fine then. That's all Master really wanted, because... There's several things that he's doing. He's, it's, it's, we have to, I can't remember now where I read this, but I read this recently. It's, it's, we have to prove ourselves to ourselves. And that's why the masters, that's why life pushes us so hard. And that's why the very difficult things that happen to us, we have to say they're brought to us by God for our own good. Because it's, it's we who have to believe in ourselves. The masters can believe in us, but if we don't believe in ourselves, then um, fear and anxiety and withholding of energy and all of these things can happen to us because if we don't have confidence that we can handle it, we're, we're not going to be able to meet life with the kind of energy we need. So um, God sends us these challenging situations time and time again. I mean, super challenging situations, death and um, you know, dis disfigurement and disappointment and all of these losses so that we ourselves can say, well, that wasn't so bad. I did fine with that. And, and we just don't have to have that anxiety. I think it was in a webinar I was giving. I was trying to remember where I was talking about this recently, but I was talking about this one moment I had when I was thinking about fear and uh, I just tried to. I just tried to think. It was one of those stories of Master that we've read in here. Well, we, we talked about him confronting the crazy man Jotin with the stick. We talked about him going into the Central Park when somebody was going to shoot him, and just confronting a man with a gun, just holding the gun right right at him, and just how what it would be like to be completely unafraid. And I don't just mean bold. But just what, what, what possible thing could happen to me that would frighten me? I mean, physical pain, torture, death, it's a violent death. And just for, just for a second, I was contemplating that just for a second, I had a feeling of what that would be like. It was like all my, uh, what you would call it, my ambient anxiety. <laughs> all the little vrittis that I have to spend so much energy keeping running all the time. 
which are all just protecting. And that's what vrittis are. They're protecting. Something has to be a certain way. And so we're just running all these things and we're protecting. And each one of those, by, by definition, is tense because it's, it's needing to hold energy in a certain pattern. And whether you call it fear or tension or whatever you call it, but we're, we have to hold things in a certain way. And to that extent, we're not able to be just neutral and let life come as it will. And I just had this, ah, oh, just for a moment, what an amazing position that would be in. So what happens is we get to experience all these things and we get to gradually find out that we're made of very different stuff than we think we're made of. And that's, that's what happens over time. Sometimes we break the wrong way and it takes longer but Master will keep pushing us. Life will keep pushing us. We don't even have to have a guru. Life itself will keep pushing us. And, you know, here we are, as I was talking earlier, in this particular political situation in our country at this time. And it uh, makes me nervous. I can, I can surrender it to God, but I, I, I can't contemplate it without a degree of anxiety. But why? You know, if it comes to us, it's coming to, to prove to us that we can endure anything. Um, it's not like one wants to ask for those kinds of difficulties. But the more, the more deeply one can embrace the principles and the more clearly one can see the principles, um, they'll return to us in our hour of need. I, I remember when I was um, very upset about um, a situation going on in the hospital with people who were close to me and I was, I was weeping in the car over just the, the pain of everybody involved and this voice spoke in one ear and came out the other ear it said do you think this could be happening outside of the will of God? and it was annoying to me because I was quite emotional and I had to stop being emotional and I just said no of course not but it just, it stopped me in my tracks. And it was because so much of the time prior to that, I had cultivated that thought. So when I was pushed up against the wall and was having a hard time holding it, it came back and said, what are you doing? And then I, I went with that. I was able to go with that. And then the whole situation changed for the better. It was like I broke in the right way. And I don't think it was just about me, but it was very interesting, the timing of it. So, all of us who've been through something really hard know that's true. Going through Tushti's death last February, you know, just watching her, you know, consistently break in the right direction. Not that she had any choice, but she did, because even when she was losing her body, she still had her consciousness. And each time she got pushed all the way up to something, she would you know, teeter there for a while and then go in the right way. And us too who were with her had to do the same thing. Very powerful. Any questions or comments before we go on? Number 154. Oh, this is a beautiful long essay that Swami writes about what Master was like. 
an astonishing aspect of Paramhansa Yogananda's life was his extraordinary mental fluidity. It revealed his utter freedom inwardly. Sometimes he compared his own thought processes to writing on water. He didn't mean he was forgetful, far from it. Indeed, his memory was utterly clear. In the freedom of his consciousness, however, he responded suitably to every circumstance he faced. He could be stern, loving, good-humored, aloof, always depending on the need and never on his own personal feelings. Even his facial expressions would change subtly with every shift in people's attitudes around him. His sensitivity to their consciousness never ceased to amaze me. It's interesting because that's exactly what I... There's more to it, but I'm going to stop for a minute. That's exactly what I was talking about. And here, um, Swamiji uses the word fluidity of consciousness. I was talking about not having any vrittis to protect. When, when you think about the chakras, um, when we're talking about the chakras, the energy coming in through the medulla has to circulate through all the chakras because we have to have all the chakras in order to manifest on the material plane. We have to go all the way to the earth chakra, which is the base of the spine, in order to have a physical body. When the sperm and ovum come together, first thing that happens is it makes the spine. It goes all the way out to the material world so it can start manifesting everything it needs from each of the chakras. And insofar as that we have vrittis in those chakras, I think of it like the UPS truck comes and it's full of packages and he, it, it goes through each of the chakras and it delivers its energy. You know, big packages, little packages, all these different shaped packages, and it leaves packages of energy in each of the chakras. And by the time the energy has come in and circulated through the chakras all the way back to here, um, whatever it brought in, it might not have that much left by the time it gets up to harmony with God's will because it's deposited so much maintaining all those little separate vrittis. And with the master, with Swami, where there were no vrittis in the chakras, the energy comes in from the divine, it circulates through the chakras, and therefore illuminates and activates all those vibrations which are necessary, but nothing is left on that level. Nothing is delivered, because there's no, no, no need to sustain anything. And... Master could be completely fluid. He could direct energy in whatever proportion was needed. He could be humorous, he could be aloof, he could be stern, uh, he could be supportive, just entirely depending on what was needed because there was nothing at all obstructing the flow of energy. I was, I've had a very interesting experience, which I've shared before, but in this context. When I was 18 and uh, 19, I lived in New York City for a summer. Oh, so many years ago, I was in New York, and I, 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 when I've visited New York, I've always said, you know, I lived here for three or four months, but then I realized it was almost 50 years ago. <laughs> or else it didn't sound very relevant. It's weird, time is so weird, because that sounds like such a big number, but I can remember. I sat on the stoop and read the trilogy, the Tolkien books that had just come out. And it was, I remember sitting there and reading those books, and it was, just, it was yesterday. But um, I, I was not comfortable at that point with um, anything that felt like confrontation. 
was, I was just very nervous about anything like confrontation and I, I was just starting on the spiritual path and I was conscious of the fact that I, I don't think I had the vocabulary this clear but it was pretty clear that behavior that looked harmonious was not really harmonious because the core quality was fear. And so what I was really expressing was fear even though I was expressing it by this willingness to get along with everyone because I would rather put up with anything than confront and have a disagreeable um, interaction. And I could feel that being a limited factor, so I, I was my practice that summer to learn to be disagreeable. Which, if you're from California and you go to New York, you can be extremely disagreeable and it's just no problem. Nobody has any problem with it. Somebody actually was writing about the present politics and was talking about how Californians react to the way Trump speaks. And that he's just from New York. <laughs> And it's, a lot of what he says is just the way they talk compared to the way we talk. And it's, it's really different worlds, especially then, 50 years ago. So I learned to be confrontive when necessary until I wasn't afraid of it. But what's fascinating to me was many, many years later, 20, well, perhaps not 20, maybe 10 years later, yeah, 10 years later, I was at Ananda Village by then, and uh, we were working on publishing The Path, and it was, the, it was the nuns who were doing the project, mostly in publications, not entirely, but mostly. And I was the manager of the workflow, and there was a woman who was quite feisty, Scorpio, very feisty lady. She believed in the Scorpio's preemptive strike. If something looks like it's about to get you, then you bite it first. <laughs> and uh, we were all under a lot of pressure, and she was feeling the pressure, so she started biting me and yelling at me and being crabby with me and it was very interesting and I just saw that nice wasn't going to work that for one she needed to fight with somebody because that was just what she needed and probably better me because I didn't care so we just had a screaming argument right in the middle of the office you know just she yelled at me and I yelled at her and she yelled louder and I yelled louder back at her and she told me things she didn't like and I told her things I didn't like and we kind of just went up to this crescendo and then it was almost like we both realized, okay, that's enough and then we just let it come down like this. But it was very interesting to me because God needed someone to fight with her at that moment or she as my sister needed somebody to fight with her and I was so pleased that I was able to do it because if I'd still been afraid, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And anything that you can't do, as, as he's writing here, Master could be anything at all, whatever was needed. He didn't have to be any way. He was completely fluid, up depending on the needs of the moment. And that's one of the ways that we so powerfully transform ourselves. Swami's constant question, how can I serve? And this morning I was uh, talking, repeating a conversation that I had a note about that was actually between Swami and Jyotish. And Swami was saying, you know, when we need to try to understand how to purify our own nature, there's two questions to ask. The first is, is this certain attitude making me unhappy? And the other is, is it limiting my ability to serve? This is a very good question. Is this quality limiting my ability to serve? And fear, 
of anything is going to limit your ability to serve. Fear, in that case, of being able to just respond to her energy in the way that was appropriate. If I'd been afraid to do it, I wouldn't have been able to serve her. Um, a funny sort of thing, but it was an interesting cycle. Well, let's take a break, and then we'll come back and pick it up from there. All right. Any other questions or comments from what we've been discussing? Siddhambar is referring to the dream that Swami told us about where he was going to be burned at the stake, and he was just perfectly, he said, perfectly relaxed about it. He said, well, yeah, you know, it'll hurt a little while, but then I'll just die, and it'll just be over, and... And he was being tied to the stake, and he said in the way that dreams are, he was sort of on one side of a room where he was being tied to the stake and the wood was being piled up around him. And on the other side, all, his, all these people were having a party and they were just feasting. And he was just over there to be burned at the stake and they were just having dinner. And then he said just at the last second, his friends came in and rescued him. And he commented when he would tell this story that he was extremely gratified to see that he was no... He wasn't particularly relieved. He had no anxiety about being burned at the stake, and he wasn't particularly relieved to be rescued. He was perfectly willing to accept being rescued, but there was no vritti. One of the ways that you can tell if you still have karma about something is if you're afraid of it. I mean, it would be natural, because then you have a very strong, your likes and dislikes are profoundly engaged. Because if you're afraid of it, you really want it to be a way other than it might be. So physical pain is certainly one of way up there, one of those things that most people fear, especially, well, especially the deliberate, cruel um, imposition of such pain. You know, being, not only being physically hurt, but in the presence of evil people. Um, I don't know, that was, that's always been one of my little stories. Past lives or future fears, I don't know which, but I have to spend a little time on a regular basis trying to imagine it and thinking it would be okay because I'd, I'd rather overcome it with Kriya than have to go through it again. <laughs> but there you are. But uh, um, let's see, there was something else about Master and his sensitivity. I think I was saying it um, just uh, thinking of having things in your toolbox so whatever is required you can just pull out the right I've heard the expression that if the only tool you have is a hammer everything in life looks like a nail <laughs> which is another way of saying if you just have one setting in your personality you're just going to treat everything the same way regardless of what the situation needs and people move through life like that but then everybody has to adjust to them and how can I serve is a very short is a very small answer because I can only serve if there's a, a nail in front of me. <laughs> if there's anything else required, I don't have any tools for it. Which is one of the ways we develop ourselves spiritually. We do it for love of others. Here then is the fourth and last stage of the soul's long journey. When you're really just um, willing to do whatever is needful. If it'll uplift other people's personalities. I uh, uh, Yesterday, Sunday I think it was, I was talking about the Jesuits coming to America in the 1700s and 1800s and out of their passion for saving the unconverted savages from eternal hell, they just were willing to sacrifice so much. And 
when we look at it with our modern sensibilities, the whole thing is a little bit hard to comprehend. But when you look at it just from the point of view of how can I serve, and serving a cause that they, they believed in so deeply that they felt, you know, that all of that sacrifice, that they were literally saving these people from eternal damnation. And what a powerful, motivating energy that was to overcome selfishness and to overcome likes and dislikes and to sacrifice everything. I mean, this is, this is the making of saints. I mean, one of the reasons why God uh, gives us that kind of um, definition of reality is because it's a, it's a powerful incentive uh, for self-transcendence. And, and it's taken just on its own terms because, it, you know, there was no, I mean, from our perspective, the disrespect to an indigenous culture might have been something that we would, we would scorn now, but it just wasn't part of the mindset. You can't apply it because it just didn't exist. All that existed was these poor souls are going to go to hell forever unless I sacrifice everything in order to save them. Really quite noble. I'm sure we all did a lot of that, which is what got us here. Got us to the point where we get have a, a more expansive teaching. But I think it was the power of self-sacrifice um, that gave us the good karma to come to this. So it's, it's quite inspiring. Um, so continuing with one number 154. In the years that I got to live with Master Swamiji writing, I never saw him in quite the same aspect twice. That's quite something, isn't it? It may seem strange, but I found it difficult, in contrast to the clarity with which I remembered his spoken words, to remember clearly what he looked like. I loved to meditate on him, but always I had to look first at a photograph I couldn't instantly recall his facial features to mind. Very interesting, isn't it? I never saw him in the same aspect twice. I mean, if you think about it, every moment is a new moment. Even if he was in the same company, everybody's consciousness is evolving. What people needed from him yesterday may not be what he needed from them today. And we think of matter as being this fixed reality, but especially our actual, our physical bodies, which are really just a vehicle for our um, consciousness. Swamiji tells the story of someone he knew very well who was going through a very difficult time spiritually. And he was in, in it was a friend in Europe, and the, the friend was coming in on the train, and Swami stood waiting for the person to come. It was a, a, a woman, and he just couldn't find her. He just couldn't find her. And then he went into the waiting room and there was only one person there. And he walked up and then very tentatively he said the woman's name and it turned out to be her. But he said her consciousness was so shifted from the difficult time that she was going through that he really couldn't be sure. I had that experience once of someone who would often appear uh, in the audiences where I was speaking and then went through a, a huge change and really, I, I just couldn't be certain I was looking at the same person. And gradually, I, I mean, I, it was really, it was so unsettling, I really didn't know. And I, I sort of tried careful not to call the person by their name until I ascertained that, in fact, this was the same person. I've never, I've never seen anything like that except 
he wrote about it and then I experienced it once. But Master's face was just a vehicle for his consciousness. So his consciousness was never the same. It was ever new joy. And presumably Swamiji was, you know, connected to him sufficiently on that subtle level that I had to look at a photograph to see what he looked like. Swamiji sometimes said to us that even though we think that we're deprived because we never met Master, he said in some ways it was easier for us. He just said it was so confusing to know that he was completely inside of Swamiji, that he was inside all of creation, and yet he was having dinner in the next room. <laughs> he said his mind just, it, it, it just, he didn't know what to do with it a lot of the time. And this, I suppose, inability to remember his face was part of it. He was a flawless mirror. Constantly he reflected back to people what they were. It wasn't that he reflected back their flaws. If they were angry, for instance, he wouldn't show anger. What he reflected back was the reactions of their own higher self to anything they were feeling. No one could fool him. Before his calm gaze, a person's inner life was stripped bare. Some people, for that very reason, feared to be around him. When I was first living at Ananda Village and I had the job where I was Swami Kriyananda's appointment secretary, which is a job I did for a few years, and he would give Sunday services and then in the afternoon he would have private appointments, you know, 15 or 20 minutes each. And he would meet people in the dome at the retreat, which is still standing there. And I would uh, host, interface. And I would have people come early enough so that we would wait on the porch and Swami would finish an interview so that we could keep the flow going. And I gradually realized that my job, sitting out there while they were waiting to see Swami, was to calm them down. Because <laughs> uh, many people didn't know him that well, and they were, there was just so much fear of what might happen, you know, what he would see and how he would react. And it was so ironic to me because people just walk around among other people all the time. And other people are judging us and criticizing us and thinking ill of us and sending mean thoughts at us and think we dress tacky and look dopey and all these things. And we don't even think about it. We just move. And here's the one person, Swamiji, in the world who's just going to love you just as you are. And all of a sudden this enormous anxiety comes. But I think it's our... Mm, we're, we're always running a little. We're always running a little against our own... Long we feared to face your love, lest our emptiness it prove. We're always running just a little bit ahead of um, that which we hope to escape without ever having to face. All the karmic debts we hope will dissolve without our ever having to pay them. You know, that's the biggest uh, tension in us. That's what it really is when we're afraid of anything. Afraid of heartbreak, afraid of bankruptcy, afraid of illness, afraid of torture. The only way those things would come to us is if we, if we charged them on a card a long time ago and never paid for them. <laughs> you know, we took, we took whatever positive we thought was going to come to us by certain actions that were not actually in harmony with divine law. 
And as a result, we created a debt. And then sooner or later, we're going to have to come back to center. And whatever that was, whether it was an adharmic action or a, an anger at God for something that happened, a refusal to be courageous in the face of challenge, whatever it was, in some way, something came to us, and instead of being able to meet it right down the center, instead we, we tried to find a shortcut. And you know, even if we succeeded in the shortcut, um, all that distance still had to be covered. I, I, uh, I guess I was saying that last night. You know, did I really think I would get away with it? One woman said to me once, she, she had a child and it, it was difficult for her to raise the child and she dealt with a lot of the toddlerness. I've, I've been told, and apparently what you don't resolve when the child is a toddler comes back when they reach their early teens. And uh, this uh, mother had just sort of outlasted the toddler stage. And when the early adolescence came, it all came back. And she sort of said to me, I thought I was going to get away with it. <laughs> Phrased it differently. I thought I had gotten away with it. <laughs> Meaning I never really put the energy into this that I really should have. But now it's just come back and now I get to. And that's anything that comes to us, that's as simple as that. But... Uh, before his calm gaze, a person's inner life was stripped bare, and some people, for that reason, feared to be around him. Because, well, here it is. It's a, it's a big deal. I've often reflected on two extreme examples of this extraordinary manifestation of an altogether superconscious nature. He was Triguna Rahitam, beyond the three gunas, or basic qualities of nature. It's a beautiful... Um, there's so many fundamental fundamental ideas in the Sanatana Dharma and one of them is the three gunas that everything in creation is a combination of the contractive force the tamasic force which is getting smaller instead of larger um, the, the rajasic force which is just moving around without going anywhere and the calm sattvic force which is moving into superconsciousness and our, the motivation for our actions, I mean, the definition of right action and the motivation why we can't just be passive in our life is because within ourselves we have to become master of those three gunas. We can't just be um, restless and we can't just be contractive and dull, which is tamasic. And so we have to constantly be overcoming and balancing. Swami writes that in the Gita commentary. The, that's the explanation why we have to strive for excellence in all that we do. Because what keeps us from excellence is because the gunas have mastered us instead of us mastering the gunas. And that's all we're doing. It's not really that we need to be an artist or a businessman or anything, but we have to master the gunas. And if we don't master them, then they own us. But the self-realized soul is beyond all qualities. Triguna Rahitam. He's mastered all three of the gunas. It's very interesting to contemplate. In other words, he, again, he's not compelled by his inner vrittis, nor is he compelled because the gunas are a quality of creation. So he's also beyond creation. Creation is always moving through these, these three forces all the time, but the guru stands outside of it. That's why he doesn't have to age. If he doesn't want to, he can appear in more than one place. At the same time, he can feel pain or not feel 
pain. Um, it just he, He's not, the rest of us are bound by the natural forces, but the guru isn't. One example is a photograph of him standing before Emilio Portis Gil, who at that time was the president of Mexico. Senor Portis Gil was a huge, was a large, rather heavyset man. The master next to him looked somewhat large and heavyset also. Both even wore similar expressions. Well, one might say, so the master was large and heavyset. But he wasn't. In the first place, he was rather short, being only about five feet six. For another, though strong, he wasn't heavyset. The impression conveyed by the photograph was due more to his consciousness. And of course, that man made his body because that body was the right size and shape body for his consciousness. He was a large, heavy-set sort of fellow. So he made a large, heavy-set body. When I was exclaiming once to a very strong man, big man, about he, just the sheer volume of his self, he just looked at me and said, it's the right size for my consciousness. <laughs> it's just, this is who I am. So naturally I have a very physically strong body, that's just who I am. Having a small female body, it looks really odd to me to see someone, you know, with size 15 shoes and those kinds of hands. It's just, but that's because it doesn't suit my consciousness. This is me. So that man, that was who he was. So when Master matched his consciousness, which he did out of fellow feeling, out of support, out of uh, being his guru, out of helping him, out of living from inside his reality, somehow or another, that vibration reflected in Master's physical body without actually changing his body. It's not like he grew a foot and gained 50 pounds, but he vibrated with the energy that the big, heavy-set man vibrated with. Fascinating, isn't it? And actually, something you can do with this, and I, I've actually done this, but don't do it publicly. You know, when you see someone with a, or you meet someone with a very unusual speech pattern, or someone with a peculiar posture, or something, or pe peculiar walk, just sometimes it's very fun just to try to imitate them. Like, why would we talk this way? Swami, and the people with accents, and Swami would talk about how people from different countries would hold their mouth. And he used to say to Savitri, who was from Memphis and then from Texas, you know, that just, you know, you have to hold your mouth a certain way to talk, talk Texas. <laughs> and he would sort of point to her. I never could actually see it, but he said, see? You know, she just had this certain way of holding her mouth because that was what was required to talk like that. I, I saw when he was running, when he was governor, who was that man who was governor? Short Schwarzenegger. He, when he talked, he made a square with his mouth. He had so much willpower that it went, yeah, he just, it, it was really interesting to watch him. His mouth kept going into a square when he would speak. You know, just, he couldn't, he couldn't, uh, it was fascinating. And that was just who he was. It, who, nobody else's body did that. Of course, he had a German accent or whatever it was, but it was more Austrian. Yes, of course, Austrian, not German. It's a very important difference. But it was, um, Anyway, it was fascinating to watch. It was what he did with his lower lip. I actually watched him because I was so interested in it. It was the way he, he pulled his lower lip down that, that made a square out of his mouth. Were you going to say something? Oh, I just... Uh, <clears throat> Swami used to say a lot that the best way to get to know someone else or anything else for that matter 
was to uh, get in your own center and then uh, find, know them from the inside out from their own center. And I suspect that Master did that by as a matter of course. He would often say that he was, uh, he was in everyone. And uh, it seems to me if, one, if Master was doing that intentionally with another person, uh, that, that might be a, he might be inclined to reflect some of the, uh, the consequences of being such another person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. Well, he was reflecting, as Swami writes, he reflected back to everyone their higher self's reaction. And so I, I passed right over that, but that's very interesting. What does your soul think of what you're doing? And uh, of course, and it was always loving and supportive, but, but you can see how, like, well, let's go to those, the gunman who tried to shoot him, and he, why, why are you living this way? You're not happy. And so he was just reflecting back. Here's the man who's being violent, and Master just looks at him, he gives back to him what his soul is feeling. And he wouldn't have always articulated it that strongly. But, th but for some people that would be frightening because there's so many things that you might know or fear that you're not doing properly. But at the same time, what your soul is always reflecting back to is you can do it, we all believe in you. You're one with the infinite, you're just fine. It's very complicated, yes. I've been watching Donald Trump going back to politics and he often speaks with his lips far as away from his heart as possible. <laughs> it's a very it's very interesting. Yeah, I, I find him so repugnant. I've never been able to watch him but it but it's such an extreme gesture. You ask I mean you you have to ask seriously what what consciousness would pull your mouth far away from your heart? Wowie gazowie. Yeah, that's very interesting. Okay, moving right along. Let's see if we finish this here. The other example was also a photograph. He is shown standing beside Amalita Gallacucci, the famous Italian opera singer. Madame Gallacucci was small. She seemed moreover in the photo at least rather frail. Strange to say, the master also looked somewhat small and frail. In the expression, too, there seemed to be a rather old-world outlook. I mean, he, he, he looked European. He looked, she was obviously, I mean, an Italian opera singer, I mean, from childhood, is going to have lived in a quite different world either than India or America, even though she was in America singing. And so that whole culture and consciousness, Master just stepped inside of her and there he was with her again. Fascinating. And yet, looking at him face to face, one saw that he was simply himself. Not tall, though robust and strongly built. His features completely pleasing to the eyes, how Swami says it. Very, there's that, such a sweet um, story. I think it was from Tara comment from Tara when after Master died when he was just lying on the bed there at Mount Washington before he was taken away. She was just looking at his face and, and said, you know, how many incarnations it took to develop such a perfect face. You know, all, just meaning of all, you know, where did the face come from? Why that face? Of course he had parents and there was a family resemblance and so on. But still, 
um, the consciousness going through that phase continually. Yes, Tandava. Fun to go through this book or the AY and just look at all the photos and compare because what he says there really applies in a lot of cases. Like yeah. the photo with uh, Giri Bala, uh-huh. uh, he he looks his face is very round and sort of drooping. They're sitting in the same way, yeah. and um, then there's like Ananda Moy Ma who's kind of playing peekaboo behind him, and he has this more playful yeah, expression. Right. And even just looking through here, there's him and Sri Yukteswar on page 231 if you have the book uh-huh. and uh, him and his brother Ananta on 357 and the Galikurchi pictures on 307 they're all in here and it, there's, they're just so different master in each one um, yeah there it is and uh, huh. yeah so it's, it's fun to just go through a bunch of pictures at once and just watch him change next to everybody it's also I mean what you can also take from that is I mean when you're with people one can either be self-protective or one can be self-offering and so it's not like one tries to well I was with Swami in Houston and uh, we went into a drugstore and the lady said can I help y'all Swami said yeah yeah we just need a few things (laughs) and he kept it up the whole time I said sir that was naughty <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but still it's it's interesting to just when you're when your places I mean there's two realities one is to never leave your own center but the other is to well allow yourself from your own center to not be afraid to embrace people around you well lots to think about okay that's it for tonight and we'll skip a week and we'll be back in two weeks then. So tonight we did number 152 through number 154. Do you think Master looks like the little bear on page one? (laughs) 